You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. We are nowhere near being on target to achieve SDG 4, and the progress is therefore not fast enough. Some speak of a learning crisis. I was discussing with Manos earlier about the accuracy of the term. Um, but whether or not it is a crisis is certainly an area of, that requires urgent attention. And I think there is a real momentum politically right now um, and a number of conversations around the high-level political forum that focus very much on what can be done to, um, uh, fast, you know, to, to, to make more progress faster to achieve um, SDG 4. Like with, if there is one thing I learned in the last few years working on migration is that when somebody mentions a crisis, there is also a moment of opportunity. And the opportunity is that to really make sure that as we uh, think about practical ways to make progress faster, the reality of the fact that people move is, on, is, is put on the, on the agenda. I always say that those of us who worked in development for the last few years have often forgotten about the reality of migration. We have not, you know, we're not paid no, in, enough attention of the fact that um, people move around the globe for different reasons. And it's time now, as the world you know, pays attention to what to do about fast-forwarding progress for SDG 4 to make sure that migration and the reality of refugees and other migrants is taken into account. The second thing that I think is worth um, uh, thinking about is that this conversation is, is, goes beyond SDG 4 and beyond schools. I think there has been a certain amount of attention on the importance of facilitating the access of refugees' children in schools in, in areas of crisis, for example, in the Middle East, but we are we're not often made the connection of the fact that investing in education and skills has a long term is a, is a long term investment with the prospects of uh, benefiting societies where migrants live in the long in the long term. And so, for that reason, we very much wanted this event to cover the full spectrum of education, skills, and learning throughout the lifetimes of um, refugees and other migrants, and also to recognize that people move for a variety of different reasons, and there is much debate about the different drivers of migration, but access to education and skills and the contribution that migrants and refugees make to society is something that is very much an agenda that is relevant across sort of the human mobility spectrum. Third and last point before I introduce the panel, um, is that there, is in, there has been a fair amount of debate in the last couple of years, for example, throughout the negotiations of the Global Compact for Migration about the fact that migration and development go hand in hand, that they're interconnected, that there are multiple <coughs> linkages between migration and all the SDGs, and we at ODI and others have done work to contribute to that, to, 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 to make that case and to explain that policy reality it's now time to turn that policy reality into practice and to really begin to engage at the consequences that the realities of the fact that migration and development go hand in hand at the operational level. And I cannot think of a better way of doing it than really considering how that can be delivered within a particular sector, where in parallel we're having conversation about financing, around coalitions, around the role of the private sectors, around you know, a number of initiatives to... Um, to really make some concrete, uh, concrete um, progress um, on, on the ground. And so I'm very pleased to have this conversation with you to do on the side of HLPF, focusing on a sector that only a couple of years ago it would have been difficult to have because we were still grappling with the notion that you know, people don't migrate as a result of a failure of development, but rather to make the most of development opportunities. Now it's time to think about how, in relation specifically to accessing 
um, education and skills, and with that investment, contribute to societies. So that's as a way of introduction, and I'm sure we'll hear some of these ideas uh, picked up um, later on. So let me introduce the uh, pretty amazing panel that we've got uh, with us today to have, um, to have this discussion. First of all, we have Right Honourable Helen Clark, who of course has a number of roles, but first and foremost was the previous Prime Minister of New Zealand. And I say that because I think you will agree with me that in council migration, political leadership is in somewhat short supply, and so it's so important to have those who have been at the forefront of running countries as political leaders uh, to share their wisdom with us. But of course, she was also um, the administrator of UNDP and is currently the chair of the Global Education Monitoring Report Advisory Group at UNESCO, and is also in this capacity that she's joining our panel today. We don't, don't have, but we will have soon, uh, sitting here, Henrietta Four, who is the uh, executive director of UNICEF. She's only joining us at 5.30, but I promise uh, that she will be here with us uh, very soon. Annette Dixon, who is the vice president for human development at the World Bank, and it's a particular pleasure for me to welcome Annette here. Annette and ODI have had a number of exchanges over the, over the years around issues of gender when we were uh, the VP with responsibility for Asia, and I'm so pleased that today in your capacity as the leader and the senior leader responsible for human development come to this discussion with the focus um, on, uh, on migration. Manos Antoninis, here is the director of the 2019 Global Education Monitoring Report of UNESCO. Of course, UNESCO and UNICEF have partnered with us for this event, and the 2019 report focused on um, um, migration and displacement. Um, David Boucher, if that's the correct uh, pronunciation, is partner at Reed Smith, um, what does LLP yeah. mean? <laughs> uh, is, is also the executive board member of the Global Business Coalition for Education and the private sector board representative, Global Partnership for Education. Um, basically, how many times have you heard here in New York the fact that the private sector was not in the room and we were having the conversation about migration and development? Well, today it is, and we're going to hear about uh, the importance of this agenda for businesses. And finally, Corinne Mauch was the mayor of Zurich, um, who is here as part of the Mayor's Migration Council meeting initiative. Um, and so is, is part of a small group of mayors around the world who is they're taking steps as, a, as global leaders to really put the experiences of cities at the forefront of the global agenda. And we're going to hear about the experiences uh, uh, of Zurich from Corinne shortly. Uh, following this panel, we have three representatives from member states in the audience who will contribute with some wisdom on what's going on uh, within countries. We have uh, Ambassador Thomas Gass, who is the Assistant Director General and the Head of the South Cooperation Department at the Swiss Agency for Development Cooperation, but of course was you know, at UN DESA until recently and throughout the, the, the SDGs negotiations and the Global Compact negotiations. Paul Whittingham is Director of Migration and Modern Slavery at the UK Department for International Development that has really stepped up his engagement on migration and development in the last couple of years and actively engaged again in the Global Compact negotiations. And finally, Isabel Maldonado Escobar, who is Vice Minister for Education in Ecuador. So again, my comment earlier about the importance of having leader, political leaders in this debate to discuss how to take all of this forward. Um, uh, as you know, this is a very busy week in New York, and a number of people have travel schedules and other commitments, so I mentioned how Henrietta will join us shortly. Ambassador Gass needs to leave, I think, around 6 o'clock, so I'm going to try to manage this meeting to make sure that everybody can uh, leave at the time where they have, so apologies in advance, Mayor 
Mao, who also needs to leave a little bit early, but we'll carry on the conversation. It does mean that as a chair, I will be pretty strict with the timings, and also we're going to try to finish a little bit early to make sure we have enough time to enjoy the drinks reception with my friend, Ambassador David Donoghue, who, of course, was a former permanent representative of Ireland here um, in New York and led the negotiations of both the SDGs and uh, the New York Declaration, and we'll hear from him at the beginning of our reception. Um, we, this meeting is being recorded, it's been streamed online on the ODI website, it will be available to download in a week or so, and we are using the hashtag HLPF2019 and MIG4Dev for those of you who like to tweet. I just had a, a vision about Trump for a minute. <laughs> um, so, um, Helen, uh, let me ask you to help us uh, put a bit of context for this discussion. Um, tell us a little bit about why education matters so much for development, and specifically what are the risks of excluding um, refugees and other migrants uh, and displaced people if we are to be, remain committed to the leave no one behind principle. Well, firstly, your uh, opening comments provoked so many thoughts in me that I, <laughs> I'll have to control myself so I get to the point of education. But you're so right that migration is the human story. Ever since we got up on two legs and walked out of the Rift Valley, people have been on the move. And they've been on the move uh, for a sense of adventure, for hope, for opportunity, and fleeing for their lives for safety and security. So our, our story as human beings is one of, of, of migration. My second point was going to be that uh, when I first went to UNDP, the first human development report was on migration and development. And it was very, very clear in its findings that uh, migration was a benefit to both source communities and recipient communities for the source uh, communities. It, it was a source of remittances back uh, into the economy, which also could be deployed for human development. A lot of remittances go back into education and the home communities. And for the recipient countries, it was filling, frankly, labour force gaps, both skilled and, and skill, unskilled. So it can be shown to be of, of benefit to, uh, to both. Uh, you know, you can ask how you know, many of the developed societies now would live without, without migrants. We're scarcely reproducing ourselves. We have uh, labour force shortages, skilled and uh, unskilled in, in many cases. What would Silicon Valley be without the very significant presence of, of, uh, of migrants with those skills? There's a worldwide search for, for skills. And in panels I've been on around uh, how cities see migrations, cities that are international cities with tech industries, they need migrants. They want settings that are conducive to attracting the very, very best people. So just sort of make those remarks in, in, in response to yours. Now, I mean, why, why education matters for development is that it is absolutely fundamental. No country reached a high level of human development without heavily investing in its people's education and fulfilling uh, their potential. That's also part of the, of the human story. And so that brings me to the, the point of comments directly uh, related to uh, the report, uh, which reminds us that education is a fundamental human right, uh, as specified in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Education for children is a right set out in the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And yet so often that right is denied uh, to migrants, uh, to the forcibly displaced, internally displaced or, or, or refugee. 
we face the reality that half of the world's forcibly displaced people, and we are talking over 70 million people now, half of them are under the age of 18 when there should be a right uh, to education. But that right can be very uh, severely uh, limited. Uh, one uh, figure that jumped out at me from the uh, report was that the numbers of school-age migrant and refugee children has increased around 26% since 2000, and the total population of those children could fill half a million classrooms. This is not a small number. It's a very, very uh, significant number. So uh, for inclusion of migrants, whether regular, irregular, asylum-seeking, forcibly displaced, whatever, for inclusion, for reducing poverty and despair among the children who are affected and the young people, access to education is absolutely uh, vital. And ideally, I believe they should be included in the national education uh, systems for all the reasons of, of social inclusion, acceptance, uh, and providing them with economic uh, uh, mobility within the society as well. Y you know, you can see the denial of education to those children as almost like a re-victimisation. Often children have ended up in another place for, you know, for, for the most terrible of, of reasons, and then to be denied the opportunity to educate is, is, is like a further uh, penalty on, on them. Um, we have uh, in the report some... Uh, really very, very nice examples of countries stepping up to accept the responsibility to educate uh, refugee children. Uh, Ethiopia, for example, has a refugee proclamation which gives refugees in their country access to the national schools. Fantastic. And Turkey plans to move all Syrian refugee children to public schools by 2020. So they also have a longer-term uh, vision uh, for that. Now... Uh, for the really, it's quite exciting to me that in the two new global compacts we have around migration and around refugees, there are a number of education-specific commitments in them. And if we're looking to how the you know, international community can be helpful, it would be to live up to those uh, commitments in the, in the new uh, compacts. There is a very significant funding gap uh, currently uh, for education for refugee children. I understand that only about a third of the, the needs that need to be funded uh, are funded. Um, and UNICEF has often used the phrase with the Syrian crisis, but it could be used with uh, many other refugee and displacement crises as well, of a lost generation. If children are denied the right to go to school for years, it, it's, it's just such a lost opportunity for their potential and for uh, human potential. I think also a key message from the report to the donor countries is that low-income countries have 10% of the world's population, but they do host 20% of the world's refugees. Uh, and they don't have the funds to cope. They do need international solidarity and, and report. And I would say um, that that also goes beyond the low-income countries who are accepting uh, uh, refugees. It goes to the middle-income countries. And over the, my years at UNDP, I was acutely conscious of the very significant impact on the budgets of Jordan and Lebanon of endeavouring to educate refugee children. These countries are not wealthy. They're categorised as middle income. But uh, when you have a very significant expansion of your population, 
uh, because of the spillover of violent events next door. It's very costly to your budget and you need help. You can't do it on your own. So the message is international solidarity around education for the displaced children is extremely important. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ellen. It is great that this message around international solidarity comes at a time where a number of countries and institutions are indeed stepping up uh, the efforts on particularly on financing for education. So the moment of opportunity is there. And we'll come back to more countries, example. But let's carry on, given the um, Helen has made reference to, to the report. So Manos, as the director of the report, share with us uh, some of its findings, specifically in relation to the, the, the benefits, but also the costs that are involved. Because often in this conversation, we by wanting to emphasize the, the potential that migration brings to development, we tend to underestimate and not fully appreciate the costs that are involved. Thank you, Marta. And uh, the report as a global education monitoring report always tries to address its topics from really truly global perspective. And we do find that migration and displacement, depending how we actually interpret it, does uh, lend itself to this global characterization. Even, uh, okay, we heard about the, the refugee crisis, the displacement crisis, usually affecting the low-income countries. But we also have uh, internal migration, which is huge in some countries of the world, like China uh, or Russia. They have uh, very large uh, uh, internal migration. One in three rural children in China are actually growing up with, uh, without a parent. And that in itself has huge uh, cost implications for a different kind. But of course, mostly, we, we tend to think of migration, uh, the uh, economic migration to the high-income countries, where the vast majority of migrants, two-thirds of the migrants, are situated. And there, I think, uh, we do lose, uh, we do have a huge opportunity. Uh, the opportunities, of course, starting from the fact that uh, people with tertiary education are five times more likely to emigrate than uh, uh, people with uh, primary education. So even in countries that do not uh, implement a selective immigration policy, even there you find the migrants are on average more educated than the, uh, the, uh, the locals. And that's a surprisingly f uh, strong fact that often gets completely forgotten. And that's where um, it is... Um, extremely important to also think of uh, the benefit that comes and the opportunity that comes when uh, migrants actually remit uh, income back to the home countries. And here, uh, Helen, of course, mentioned we know that remittances are the largest uh, development uh, financial flow that is often forgotten in aid debates. And the report contributed to this debate by estimating that if only we uh, reduced the cost of remitting from the current levels of 7% or slightly more than 7% to the SDG target of 3%, $1 billion could be saved for education only just from, uh, from uh, meeting one of our SDG targets. Um, of course, uh, education has to be uh, of the right kind. And it has to be of the right kind in the sense that the curriculum uh, and the teacher education need to be inclusive because people with more education end up being much more receptive to the idea of immigration levels uh, staying the same or even increasing. Uh, otherwise, we do face the challenges of the wrong kind of uh, education that leads to uh, the phenomenon of, of uh, xenophobia and of prejudices and, of course, of all this uh, uh, receptiveness to, to, to yellow press uh, findings that actually end up being so devastating uh, for all lives concerned. And another dimension that we found as an opportunity is that we tend to think of migration as a, the negative brain drain uh, de debate and discussion, but in fact, at moderate levels of emigration from most where most countries are, um, in fact, uh, the prospect of migration 
ends up leading people investing more in education. Uh, ultimately, the, the, there is a positive uh, effect overall on education levels. Uh, it reaches its maximum at emigration rate of 15% for the highly educated. So that means it is an additional force for good. Uh, because knowing that you can have, a, a, as you say, because it is really development driven, knowing that you have a prospect um, uh, lets most fa more families invest in education. But of course, we should not forget the costs. Uh, unfortunately, people, because their qualifications are not recognized, they end up often uh, being overqualified for their jobs. One uh, in three migrants end up being overqualified uh, over for their jobs compared to only one four of locals. So there's a lot more to do there. And I think we know that in, the, in Europe, one in eight people claim that the fact that their uh, qualifications and prior learning is not recognized is their number one problem for integration. Uh, we also uh, know that uh, although the cost itself of immigration for most systems is not that high, it's, sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative, but it's only plus or minus 1% of GDP overall. But what we do observe is that very few countries target their resources in those parts of their education systems uh, where there are more migrants concentrated. And actually Zurich is a very good example of, of a country, of uh, at least uh, Zurich, the, the canton, uh, that has invested in a proper, uh, program of quality for multicultural schools that has now been going for many years and is maybe the only, if I remember well, the only canton that actually turned it into law to protect it from the, the political uh, changes that happen from, from year to year. Um, but as Helen said, the real problem is with refugee education and uh, we know that we have a big gap. One contribution of the report was to find out that uh, of this one third of the gap that is being filled, actually half of that is filled through development budget and not through humanitarian budget. And that was an interesting finding that had not been quite appreciated before. And we know that that means that there is potential for closer collaboration, the famous development humanitarian nexus when it comes to education. There's plenty more to do, but we are on a, on a good starting point. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Manos, for such a, a sort of, uh, sort of data-rich uh, contribution that I think helps us also some, you know, the reminders, some hooks. And also, as, as, as often it is the case in migration, that you know, beyond the rhetoric, there are some realities to grapple with. Some are, you know, truly, um, you know, true opportunities, but also without forgetting about the challenges and the costs. Um, let me also welcome Henriette for the executive director of UNICEF, who's now joined us, and I will come to you in a minute. But because we mentioned Zurich, let me perhaps go straight to uh, Mayor Mao, who, um, um, to maybe tell us a bit more about the investment that Zurich and the region has made, and also maybe give us a sense about the political reasoning behind it, and, you know, the investment for what purpose, um, and what the experience of the city um, has been. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, I would like to, and I'm delighted to contribute to this important discussion on behalf of the city of Zurich. The right to education is our human right. It is the responsibility of all states to ensure that this right is granted. For cities that attract migrants from all over the world, it is of key importance that all inhabitants have access to education and not only to school, irrespective of where they come from or what their residential status is. By this, I mean that cities need to ensure that any obstacle to a successful educational path are removed. One of the biggest challenges we face as cities when trying to guarantee equal access to education to all is language education. Language is an instrument of thought. It is an instrument for learning. Language 
is language education is the key issue. In the city of Zurich, around 30,000, we have 430,000 inhabitants, around 30,000 children and adolescents are currently in compulsory education. About one third of all schools in Zurich consist of 40 or more foreign, 40 or more percent foreign nationals. At least 50% of the students in our primary and secondary school speak one, speak more than one language. We need to build on this wealth of language skills. Besides, commu communicative language skills are not enough for children to have a successful school education. That is why we provide additional German lessons to around 30% of all school children in compulsory education. This gives them better access to education. The second obstacle is the varying amount of resources parents have with which to support their children. In the Swiss education system, parents play an important role. Immigrants are not familiar with the school system in Switzerland. It is not rare for the school's expectations to clash with those of the parents. As a city, we invest in this area, for example, by, developing by deploying interpreters for school-based discussions or by holding information events for parents who are new to the area. In the urban context, we also have numerous families in difficulty, such as working poor, single parent, or chronically ill families who, for a variety of reasons, cannot support their children in school-related matters. As such, we also need compensatory measures, and to this end, we often work together with NGOs and NPOs. One example I would like to mention is the Future Kids program offered by the Asylum Organization in Zurich, an independent organization working for the city of Zurich. University students offer mentoring to school children who do not receive enough support at home and making them less likely to succeed in the school system. University students help primary school children to make better use of their learning abilities. They themselves learn social responsibility. Some universities recognize this dedication as a part of higher education and integrate it in their curricula. A win-win situation for the young generation, for school children, and for students, and thus for the society as a whole. In our fight against these two obstacles, low skills in language of schooling and poor parental involvement, our partnerships with NGOs, civil society, and other institutions are of key importance. You were asking for examples. I will try to give you some more time permitting, regarding improvement of uh, German skills. 
Apart from our own daycare centers, we build partnerships with local private daycare centers where we offer specific language support before compulsory school begins. We animate parents to enroll their children and to make use of the daycare centers. We offer in-service training for the personnel of daycare centers, also for the private sector, so that they can take on the challenge to meet the specific needs of multilingual children. Other example, we support the Swiss Red Cross, which brings together local volunteers and school children providing an informal setting in which the children can practice and build on their language skills. And another example, uh, another important collaboration is heritage language education. Academic use of language in the native language makes it easier to master a new language and educational contents taught in this language. In the city of Zurich, heritage language courses are offered in 31 languages. These are organized by parent associations, by consulates and embassies. The city of Zurich provides classroom and some equipment. As for the poor parental resources, Caritas Switzerland, which financially is supported by the city of Zurich, offers the co-pilot program which organizes mentoring relationships between local and immigrant parents, helping them, for example, to prepare for parent-teacher meetings or to fill out documents related to school. Access to education is the key to social, to financial, and democratic participation, and thus for social cohesion as a whole. In turn, language education is the key to access education at all. In a world dominated by global migration, we should be very attentive to not violate the children's right to education. To successfully overcome this challenge, exchanging ideas on possible approaches to solutions at the international level is of crucial importance and very helpful. Thank you much, very much for your attention. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Mayor Mauchen. I know that you need to um, leave soon, so I take this opportunity thank to thank you. you for your participation and coming to offer these very concrete examples from the city of Zurich. And listening to this, I was wondering as I come uh, to you, Annette, is that, of course, one can think of the, all of this is, is possible in, in, a, in a context where resources are available. But mm. um, can you tell us a little bit, you know, in, in a, obviously the remit of the bank is to work with a number of countries of the world, and we heard both about the, the, the struggles of low-income countries but also middle-income countries that often are origins or also transit countries in the, in the migratory route or, in fact, destination countries themselves. So given that this, this investment in education in the early years is such, you know, has such potential for lifelong learning and economic contribution to societies. Uh, what, what does that mean for um, low and middle income countries along migration routes? Okay, well thanks very much. I mean, I think one thing to sort of put it in context is that there, are, there was last year about a quarter of a, of a billion migrants, and that includes refugees, and refugees make up about 10% of that number. So this is a huge number. 
Um, and one of the things I think that we, we forget um, or don't have visibility over is that about two-thirds of these migrants in sub-Saharan Africa are actually migrating intra-regionally. Same in Eastern Europe and Europe. Um, I used to be based in Central Asia, and I remember uh, about 10 years ago, I remember at that time, uh, half of Tajikistan's foreign uh, uh, income was actually coming from remittances. It was the highest percentage of remittances as a total share of foreign income coming into the country, of any country in the world at that time. And I have a graphic memory of uh, crossing a border one night um, uh, in Central Asia and seeing a convoy of 200 buses full of migrant workers making the journey to Russia um, where they would work in the construction industry. So there's a huge amount of movement in the, in the world that we perhaps don't see in Zurich, but it's actually going on uh, in uh, the developing world. I was in Chad a few weeks ago. Chad is one of the poorest countries on the planet, and they host 800,000 refugees. You know, so this is, and Chad has gone through a period where they didn't actually have the resources to pay their teachers for three years. So these children uh, are, you know, that, that are being hosted there are in a, in an incredibly poor, poorly resourced environment. So the challenge of, of uh, getting kids into school, it sort of goes way beyond the sort of smaller group of refugee children. There is a big issue with the refugee children because most of the financing in the humanitarian world is of a short-term nature. And these children are not there for short periods of time. I was in northern Lebanon a, a few weeks ago as well. And you know these children have been there for five years, and the funding is is stitched together with all of the goodwill that the uh, development partners, the donor countries, can actually bring. But it's it's short term stitching together to actually make it possible for kids to to be in school, um, and that's in spite of Lebanon and Jordan and countries like that actually committing huge amounts of their own resources. Uh, to actually expand their school systems. Um, Lebanon and Jordan have expanded their school populations by about 25%. They have double shifts to make sure that actually they can accommodate the kids. So these, are, these countries are stepping up. They are stretching themselves, but they need a long-term commitment. Um, and, I, you know, I, there's a kind of remarkable symmetry in, in numbers in a way. You know, I was looking at the numbers. As, as I said, there's a quarter of a billion economic and re refugee migrants in the world today. There's also a quarter of a billion kids who are not in school in the world today. Um, and uh, when we talk about the learning crisis, it's not only that quarter of a billion who are not in school. It's not enough to get kids into school, as we find. It's, it needs a lot more to actually help them learn because the schools that kids are going to are really poorly resourced. The, the teachers are, have very uh, big challenges in being able to both teach and actually have uh, mastery over the curriculum that they're teaching in many cases. You know, there are developing countries today where there are, are illiterate teachers on the payroll. 
Um, so there is a huge, there is a crisis in ed ed education, and it, it and it doesn't stop at getting the kids into school. It's it needs a huge effort to get kids to actually learn. But just coming back to migration, I think when we talk about the benefits of migration, it's true that migration has huge benefits for both sending countries and receiving countries. For the, for the migrants, it depends very much on whether they have high skills or low skills, because the world is very different, as, as, we, as we appreciate. Now, you know, in this country, where we're all sitting today, uh, I, I, I saw one number. 40% of the largest firms in the US were started by first or second generation migrants. That, that's a really important number because it actually tells you that high school migrants actually are able to generate jobs uh, for the host community. They really are making a big contribution to growing the economy. So the challenge that I think we have in education is actually to help kids in developing countries to develop skills. So whether they stay or whether they migrate, they actually will be making a contribution to, to the economic uh, life of wherever they choose to live. And, and I think that the last point is that migration is not going away. It's actually growing, and it is projected to grow, not just because of inequality and fragility, but the demographics around the world are driving it, and the fragility and conflict that we see is driving it. And so I think, I think uh, this is only going to preoccupy us even more going forward. Uh, thank you, Annette. And um, uh, Mayor, in case you need know, to give, that's, that's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll come back to you, uh, Henriette, in a minute because of some of the experiences you've considered which may resonate with some of Annette's comment. But just to pick up on a couple of things Annette said, which are really important, which is this idea that as much as obviously, you know, I very much agree that migration is the story of humanity, and yet is also a phenomena where the the polarization, the different experiences on, you know, depending on where you live, is so is so stark, and and also depending on the level of skills that you uh, have the opportunity to acquire. But very much on that, Henrietta. So for you know, having visited schools in in Mexico and Honduras that are struggling to retain girls and boys under pressure from violence and poverty. Um, can you share some of the reflections of what can be done you know, and what UNICEF is, um, is focusing on um, uh, at the moment in, on, on education and migration? Um, so thank you very much. Uh, well, um, my visit to Honduras and Mexico was very interesting. I think sometimes we take for granted all of the things that we have in our lives and we forget what might be in someone else's life. And when I was in Honduras, um, one of the statistics that first hits you is that um, every day a child dies from violence. So it's not surprising that when we do polls and we ask um, children and young people what is their biggest fear, it's violence. Uh, but when we ask them what's their dream, what's their hope, it is what Annette and Helen and Manos were talking about. They want a good education and they want to learn some skills from which they can make a living. And it doesn't have to be a very important living, it's just a living. They want to stay there and they want to build a life and have a family. 
So the other statistic that um, strikes you when you're in Honduras is that there are 170,000 young people that turn 18 every year, and there are 11,000 jobs. So no wonder they're really interested in how they can make a living and how their secondary school education can be useful. Many of these young people drop out of school and they're worried about getting recruited by gangs. So the statistics on young people that are not in employment, that are not in education, is high. And it is something that we should all be very concerned about and we should try to really focus our attention on it. So one of the um, new initiatives that we have uh, outlined is a Mesoamerica education initiative. Uh, this is following what uh, was done with um, the Inter-America Development Bank called Salud Mesoamerica. And we are hoping that if there can be a focus on a good education, to Annette's point, about an education that really has quality of learning, and pair it with some skills, some occupational skills, which can be transferable skills like critical thinking and entrepreneurship and communication, but also some occupational skills to learn to be a baker, a barber, an engineer, a teacher, a nurse, uh, that will be important for them and some good digital skills in addition to the foundational skills of literacy and numeracy that will make a very big difference in Central America. Mexico is one of the other um, countries that the statistics are referring to with lots and lots of young people and families that are on the move but it's, it's, it's uh, in, in, within Mexico migration and they are looking for uh, lives in which they might get employment, and they are looking for something that is better on education. For others, one, one young family that we met in Guerrero, it is that they are running away from the violence, that they feel that if they don't move and have a life, that they will lose their life. And that is a different experience which many of us uh, in our lives do not experience. So uh, listening to the young who are migrating, listening to the children who are en route, listening to children and what their hopes and dreams are can really provide a window into many lives. So what can we do about it? Um, what we know is that um, those who are migrants ask us usually for four things, and you will hear it when you're in Mexico a safe shelter and housing. Second is integration into the education system, which the mayor of Zurich was very uh, eloquent about. They have to learn a language if they do not carry the language. Third is access to skills and employment opportunities for youth. And fourth is regional cooperation around education certification, skills accreditation, accelerated learning opportunities for children. Um, so that their education is not interrupted. So this issue of getting a certification is, I think, a very important one, and it's going to transform the lives of many migrants. If you can be certified um, 
that you have completed the second grade or the sixth grade or the tenth grade and that you have certain skills, it means it is portable. It is with you. UNICEF has a number of programs that we've started with this. Uh, we think that this is something that is exceptionally important for the years to come. We've also started a program called Generation Unlimited that was launched at the last um, General Assembly in last September. All of us are part of it. Uh, but its focus is to try to get to the 1.8 billion young people in the world who are between the ages of 10 and 24, a good education and access into skills. So uh, that would be one thing. The other thing that we have been focusing on is ways that we can remove the barriers to, um, to having a birth certificate and a right to enter a school. This is not true for everywhere. But when you are in, if you are Rohingya, that is in Cox's Bazaar, you know you need to enroll in school. And the other is, it is very important for all of us to think about the mental distress that can happen for migrants. So combating xenophobia, combating um, the psychological distress of being a migrant on the move. So that at least begins. To, to address the question. Thank, thank you. you. Um, thank you very much. And thank you also for some very concrete example of what can be done in relation to, you know, in the context where the drivers of migration are multiple and challenging because it's not only a matter of integration at destination in host countries, but also what can be done in, in terms of investment in countries of origin or transit where some of these drivers uh, are, the, you know, are, the, are the origin of the migration journey. And there's last and not least, um, David Boucher. We've actually heard quite a few examples about how in the city of Zurich or with UNICEF, the private sector is in partnership with cities or with agencies to deliver services. But also, you know, tell us a little bit about how crucial this is for the private sector to deliver on its mission and to, um, and to, and to prosper, to have migrants with skills and education yeah i mean i think the private sector <clears throat> in what it can do to help is is almost uniquely uniquely placed um and you know there's obviously an urgent need in many parts of the world at the moment where there are either conflicts or, or natural disasters an important point i do want to make about the private sector because it's a, 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 since i've been engaged in this process it's been a challenge from others who see the private sector as privatizing education, which is not what this is about. The private education sector is a very small part of business. Um, they can help, but that's not what, what this is about. Um, I think um, you know, we all want to provide more finance uh, to help with uh, education, um, but that often takes a long time to get where it's needed. And of course, we all know the challenges of making sure that it does actually deliver on what it's meant, meant to deliver. I think the advantage of the private sector, and, and I can talk briefly about some examples, is there's the potential for massive engagement by providing goods, services, people, their voice. I think often that's even better than a check, not that we don't want checks. But it's real engagement of the people with, uh, with education. So um, as you said in the introduction, um, I'm part of what's called the Global Business Coalition for Education, which is about bringing together uh, different organizations within the private sector uh, to engage um, on, on uh, helping in education in, in developing countries. And 
you know, we've made a start. We've got a number of examples, particularly in the technology sector, where we've had companies providing technology learning in African and other developing countries. Uh, we've worked with a satellite company that provides internet services in, in schools in Africa. It's a start, but they have to talk to one another. So they have to talk to other NGOs to help them on the ground. Uh, again, the advantage of, of, of the private sector is they're often there on the ground already. So when you're talking about emergency situations, uh, they can actually deliver more quickly and help more quickly on the ground. Um, I think the other important thing is, um, and it's very interesting talking about uh, what was mentioned earlier in terms of some of the larger corporates in particular, which were started by migrants um, originally. Um, you know, everybody talks more and more uh, in, the, in business now, and actually particularly here in the United States, about the importance of diversity in the workforce and what diversity can bring to the workforce. And we've all, survey after survey is very consistent about increasing efficiency and productivity on the, the, the greater diversity you have within the workforce. I think particularly when it comes to immigrants and migrants, um, you know, I do quite a bit of work with those with disabilities. Um, and I think there's an analogy there often that you're dealing with people who have had to overcome some amazing challenges that some of us couldn't even begin to understand. And they have the, the attributes and qualities that most employers would give their right arm for. And I think engaging business with NGOs, with, with, NGOs, with, with companies, with the UN, with, with, with the international and multilateral uh, agencies, I think will help deliver on what that can really bring to big, you know, to, to business going forward, to further employment going forward. And when it comes to actually engaging in education uh, itself, um, again, I think part of the problem is there's been a focus on, if I can say, academic training as, a, as opposed to more vocational training. And again, I think big business needs to help engage with the education systems uh, to make sure that these kids will then have jobs at the end of the, of the education. A lot of people talk at the moment about the, the fourth industrial uh, revolution and there's been talk about increase, you know, the, the massive developments in technology, increased digitalization, and you know, there have been lots of reports where I think nearly 50% of jobs that exist now won't exist by the time kids uh, finish their, their education. Again, how are you going to deal with that? Engage business. And business is keen to engage. And there are, again, there have also been examples recently with data. It was interesting in Manos's report talking about the challenges of data. Um, I'm on the board of the Global Business Coalition. Uh, sorry, the, the, so many boards, I, I lose count which, which organisation it is. The Global Partnership for Education. Again, we've involved the private sector there with the tech companies to try and deal with the challenges of, of relying on data from different developing countries. And it's particularly difficult with migrants. They're on the move all the time. How can you rely on that data? But actually, it's been a great example of where we've got companies which are you know, in the commercial world competing one another with one another all the time. 
working together on a strategy to have um, standardised criteria for data in these countries. So I think there's a lot that business can do. I think there's a real momentum at the moment. Uh, so I'm hoping you'll see a, a lot more of business in, in education. Thank you, David. Um, let me come to, um, um, to all of you. Thank you for all the panellists. Um, and I'm, I'm aware we're running a little bit late, so I really want to make sure that I give the opportunity for our three member states to kick off the discussion with some reflections on what this all means uh, at the country level. So let me start with Ambassador Gass uh, from the Swiss Development Cooperation Agency, who can share a little bit some of the Swiss priorities uh, on this. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for these really important and interesting points. And I'm not going to repeat our statistics and also the way uh, migrants and people who are uh, left behind or excluded from school are actually disadvantaged in their lives. I want to go as you challenged us directly to some of the, the operational and, and, and policy leverage that, that we see as the Swiss Agency for Development and Cooperation. And, uh, I mean, you said earlier on that uh, migration um, and problem of education with migrants and refugees goes beyond education, but precisely it goes beyond it. We have to start building the education system as well. So for us that is a, is a key point and that's why we invest strongly, for example, in the global partnership on education. And uh, as you know, that partnership invests strongly in the countries of, for example, in Africa. There we come alongside with uh, bilateral programs where we then work hand in hand with our humanitarian colleagues to make sure that the, that the migrants also get access to the schools, as was explained through, for example, sharing of the classroom, to making sure that languages isn't uh, uh, languages aren't, aren't the the obstacle for integration, and also a sensitization of the population. Um, it also means thinking out of the box and, and uh, looking at options, for example, uh, for example, uh, such as mobile schools uh, for pastoralists, um, which we do in the Sahel, for example. These are all possibilities that we, can, that we can invest in, but it requires us to work differently within our own agencies and uh, to overcome the silos that we sometimes have between our humanitarian uh, our humanitarian uh, support and our development cooperation. So um, I, I went with a, a colleague uh, of mine who is heading the humanitarian aid. We went together to the Horn of Africa where we visited some of the IEP camps. Imagine um, the Somali region of Ethiopia, 3 million inhabitants, 1 million uh, IDPs. You go into a, a village that has uh, maybe 5,000 inhabitants and a refugee camp of 70,000 inhabitants just next to it with uh, half of them children. And you can imagine what is left in the school. Nothing. The school is about as big as this, as this room and three classrooms, etc. But it, it cannot absorb the capacity. So building the resilience of communities to be able to to uh, to absorb and to help is uh, absolutely critical. Um, 
We also uh, have in, um, an important aspect of, uh, of our investment in education is this link between education and, prof and vocational skills development, which we, which we mainstream throughout our programs. Um, we also have a commitment to our parliament that we, during the current uh, strategic plan of uh, 2017 to 2020, we will increase by 50% our investment into, into education. So, very strong uh, commitment. And, uh, and yet, I want to uh, bring the ball back a little bit into the, into the court of, of our maybe Western or Northern communities and remind us of uh, target 4.7 of the SDGs. 4.7 is a is a promise that we will make sure that our kids uh, learn what sustainable development is and what inclusion and tolerance is. And uh, last year, 2018, PISA introduced uh, for the first time a module on global competencies, which was supposed to test, you know, whether our children are actually learning that uh, the, their world end, uh, does not end at the, at the side. Um, at the border of the city or the country, and very few countries actually participated in that module. So here's a very, very concrete thing we need to do to make sure that this, uh, that this module gets, uh, gets proposed again and that as many countries as possible participate. Otherwise, we're, we're, we're missing the soul of the, of the SDGs. Thank you. Um, thank you, Thomas. And actually, on this, actually, Paul, can I come to you and ask you about the UK? Because you, uh, you, you now have a, a dedicated team in the UK that is, is aimed at bringing migration to the heart of sort of DFID's policies. I wonder, given we've heard a lot about the challenges that there are there, you know, the, the humanitarian development divides, give us a bit of a sense about the progress that you're making in sort of bringing migration to the heart of yep. the education, you know, uh, commitments and policies that Thanks, Marta. Thank Can everyone hear me okay? Yeah. Thanks very much for the invitation to, to participate. And, um, you know, as um, Helen, you mentioned, despite the fact that migration has been a historical phenomenon over the, over the generations and for millennia, it's only very, very recently that we in DFID, and I think the international community has started thinking about um, the links between migration and development. For us, that um, uh, thinking was born and prompted by the series of crises around the world, the Syria crisis. In fact, now in DFID, we are, so, we are more heavily invested in Lebanon and Jordan than anywhere else in the world. And these are countries that we never thought we would be back in, that we thought we'd escaped. And so uh, Syria and the Syria crisis prompted the Mediterranean uh, uh, influx and crisis, and that in turn led to an emergency response, um, and so we were very, very um, immediately in emergency response mode, and we've only, uh, we've only belatedly start to emerge out of that, to start thinking about some of the bigger questions that migration throws up, and the Global Compact was really a shot in the arm for us in that, because it's it, it, it enabled us to, to think more widely about um, the links between migration and development. Um, DFID, I should say, is unusually the coordinating bit of uh, the UK government across this international migration piece. So we find ourselves in a very unusual position of having to work with our Home Office colleagues who lead mi migration and immigration policy within the UK to coordinate our diplomatic networks. Um, and uh, this was a great opportunity for us, but it, it did force us to confront some of the aspects of migration in the round, which we as development people don't normally have to deal with. It's very healthy for us. 
Um, you know, the UK actually has a very strong story to tell on migration. We are the fifth biggest country in the world in terms of migration population inside the country. We have the ninth biggest diaspora in the world. Um, but these aren't things that we were able, given the political climate, necessarily to talk about very, very um, freely. Although the political debate in the UK on around the compact and Marrakesh has not been as um, vicious, perhaps, or as pronounced as it has been in, in many other countries. So, you know, the UK government position on the compact is that we see it as um, uh, uh, the thing that we, despite the, the, the best way in, within the rules-based multilateral system, which we can continue to support, notwithstanding the, the sort of crisis that we're going through in the UK at the moment, um, that is the way and that is the, that is the forum, provides the best opportunity to tackle some of these issues in the round. For us, across the comprehensive range of priorities that the Compact sets out, we have four broad priorities which um, do reflect, I think, probably a lot of the thinking um, uh, you know, globally. The first is to ensure that vulnerable migrants across the whole of the route are protected and we have a particular focus on modern slavery there. So we want to ensure that, and I, I think all of these priorities incidentally allow a focus, allow us to look at education uh, and potential policy entry points for education. So protection of vulnerable migrants along the route is the first, given our focus on, on modern slavery and human trafficking. Second is data and evidence. We, we realize very, very quickly that we have very limited, unlike many other bits of the development spectrum, we know very little about what works in terms of migration interventions. We know very little about the migrant experience. And of course, it is very diverse and very context specific. So we are investing very heavily in understanding and, and in, in data and in evidence. So the, the work of the, the panelists there is extremely important to us. The, th the third reflects at the sort of domestic um, priority of ensuring that if we are to have public confidence in migration and to continue to be this outward facing and, and migrant welcoming society, we have to, as a society, have confidence in the return system, in the asylum system, in the proper border management across, because that is an important quid pro quo of a uh, of, of safe and regular migration, is that where irregular migration happens, it is obviously as I mentioned, the, the victims are protected, but also that there are systems in place to ensure that borders, that, that states take their responsibilities seriously with borders. And then finally, and I think most interestingly for this debate, is what we call productive migration, which means, in our language, thinking about Africa, um, where, which is a big focus for DFID and, and the UK, the, dem the demographics in Africa, as we all in this room know, are that every week tens of thousands of young men and women will enter onto the job market uh, in Africa. Um, and the jobs that are there for them in their own countries will be much less. And so they will necessarily move to find work to the hubs around countries. So, if we are serious about maximizing the potential of that continent and achieving the SDGs, then we have to find ways to address safe, regular, productive migration um, uh, effectively. And so I think, I hope that gives you a sense of our UK priorities around the compact. And Thank you, Paul. And then last but not least, if I can have uh, in the room is there is uh, the Vice Minister um, um, Maldonado from Ecuador. Thank you. So um, you will make your remarks in Spanish. I'll do my best. No, I'll, I'll do it in English. Oh, you do it in English. Perfect. That's what I, was, I was ready to help. Thank you, Marta, uh, for having but us over. Yes. 
<laughs> Thanks for inviting us over to talk about our, our, situa our migrant situation. Um, so we are um, representing Ecuador. We're a small country in South America um, that has had a lot of history of migration. We have received the largest number of refugees from the region. Uh, we have received uh, refugees from Colombia because due to the armed conflict and right now from Venezuela due to the social, political and economic situation. Uh, so our, our Ecuadorian constitution and our Intercultural and Bilingual Education Act responds to the right to education for all. And um, so it guarantees the access, permanence and quality of education for the entire population without any type of discrimination and, work, and works towards its inclusion through affirmative actions and updating the public policy for all children, adolescents and, adult, and adults. So we have created um, different educational programs to reach the most vulnerable. Uh, we have one that's for the um, family care services for first childhood. So we go to the children. Uh, if they cannot attend the school system, we go to their places, we go to their houses or, or to their communities so that they can have education in their areas. Uh, we have a program that's called NAP, which is pedagogical uh, leveling and acceleration for children from eight to 18 years old, which this helps a lot to the migrant population because they go, they reach our country and maybe they have not gotten education in a few years. Uh, so we level them up to, the, to their age level or to their educational level. And uh, we have another program which is called EBHA, which is education for young people people and adults with school delay of three years and that is for uh, people from 15 years old and older. They can have this education online or also they can attend to schools. Uh, so the actions that the Ministry of Education uh, have taken due to the situation of human mobility is, is two. One is access and continu continuity in the national education system, which guarantees the right to education. So one, uh, one of the main things is to eliminate the barriers of access and permanence to the educational system. Um, we are working on, ac on, on access to education in any period of the school year, uh, because you, <laughs> migrants don't ever choose when to, when to leave their country, so we're trying to do that. Um, we are trying to revalidate the, the levels of academic levels um, without, not, without any requirement for identity documents and educational record for access to our school system. And the second is attention to the vulnerable population in the national school system through uh, the psychologists in schools uh, so to, that we can prevent violence and um, vi violence in the streets or in the school system. Sorry. Uh, in 2018, we have ha we had uh, 43,112 foreign students, uh, which it cost the country 22.5 million dollars. So as we were talking before, one of the main things for uh, one of the challenges for um, for migrants, for countries attending migrants is the, uh, the financing. So to increase the number of people who demand, the increase in the number of people who demand educational services entails the need of financing. So it is necessary to have the budget and speci specialized service packages necessary to serve the population in human mobility and also the host population. Thank you. Um, thank you very much again for you know, this, you know, this, uh, such specific examples with uh, uh, 
you know, lessons on what does it take for a country that is at the one of the many that is at the receiving end of large uh, flows of migrants and refugees from the region, which is often, you know, the, you know, where the real challenges, but also the opportunities are in in this in in providing education for. For children, uh, let me take a few questions from the floor. I said I only take two or three because uh, we can have the opportunity to carry on the discussion over drinks in a minute. So there is one, okay, four, then then that's it. There is the first one at the back, uh, Sarah, um, and then two on that side, and then uh, one here at the front. And if we can get help with the mics, that would be great. Thank you very much. Oops, <laughs> I try again. <laughs> My name is Sarah Rosengarten. I'm with the Open Society Foundations. I was curious to know whether you have looked into any relationship that there might be between the governance of education systems and outcomes for both all children, but also in particular migrant refugee children. So how school systems are governed and who has um, authority actually over education policy, but also spending. Um, we heard from the mayor. So I, I wonder if there is like, if there are patterns that you are aware of when it comes to the governance and, and its relationship with outcomes. Thank you. And this is maybe is one for, I don't know if this is something the reports that you looked at. Um, so there are two at the back there. Yes. Hi, uh, my name is Sanjana. I'm from the Women's Federation for World Peace International. Um, so we spoke a lot about the importance of the right to education and access to education. Um, and of course, those are important first steps towards getting a child on the road to a better life. Um, but in a country like India, where populations are increasing and resources are becoming increasingly scarce, a lot of parents are choosing to send their children to work in dangerous factories rather than send them to schools. Um, because they are struggling to even make ends meet. Um, so in a country like that, uh, what are some incentives that we can provide for parents to send their children to school um, rather than send them to work? And I th that's probably one, uh, one for you. There is one also there at the back. Hi, my name is Rachel. I'm from New York City. My question is that, you know, I've met a lot of people that are um, a bit hesitant towards migrants and migration, not necessarily because they're against it, but just because they don't feel like their country and especially their schools have the capacity to absorb um, because you know the schools are already working at overcapacity. Um, so I just want to know what your um, answer would be to them if you could provide any solutions for that. For whoever wants to pick up these questions about the narratives, and then there is one here at the front. Well, um, I think you need the mic. Can you please come? Thank you. Thank you. And thank everyone for an uh, interesting, provocative conversation here. I'm Cora Weiss, and I also represent the Global Campaign for Peace Education, which is an online program every day that talks about quality peace education in schools. So that's basically my question. What is quality education? And why are we talking mostly about skills education, which I assume means philosophy or political science or uh, psychology are not essential in migration education? And I remember when one of your predecessors, uh, Carol, Bellamy was the head of UNICEF and she was promoting schools in a box and it was at one of the Iraq wars was going on. Uh, and I kept saying, you know, you're talking about the three R's, basic education, reading, writing, and arithmetic. And where is that gonna get people who require critical thinking and reflection? 
And why don't you teach a fourth R, reconciliation? Because a lot of these kids are coming out of war environments where they have to hate or not hate the other. So my question to everyone is, what are you doing about quality education? And have you ever thought about integrating peace education into migration education? Thank you. Or education for migrants? Thank you. Manus, can I suggest that you go first for picking up some of the specific sure. questions that came up and then others can chip in. Thank you. So the issue of governance, I did make a reference um, initially when I said that the big problem we face today is how to target resources to those uh, areas where uh, migrants tend to be concentrated. And there is indeed a challenge there because very few countries use migration or some variable related to migrant concentration to target resources. And if only that could be done, that would be so much more effective. But I, I would say in terms of governance, the best example, look at Norway. Norway, after experimenting with four different ministries, decided to allocate the responsibility for the integration of migrants to the Ministry of Education. Now, just imagine how far ahead uh, looking uh, this uh, approach is. Uh, no other country, as far as we know, has done that. And I think that also answers to your question, because you're absolutely right. The issue uh, about uh, how we address these problems is the, the breadth and depth of education. Uh, and in fact, I would go a step beyond that. It's not only the education that is delivered in school, but it's also uh, the links to non-formal education. And the report actually has a, chapter, a section of, the, of, the, um, of, um, of a chapter that really dedicates its uh, attention to all these initiatives that particularly take place in cities. Uh, through municipal authorities to really ensure that uh, migrants are integrated into society through other means and not just what's happening in school because we really need to create this uh, environment that will make uh, people develop their sense of belonging. Uh, last uh, response on uh, migrants and whether they need uh, incentives to educate their children. I don't think uh, there is a problem about that at all. Migrants are very, very much investing in education. That's why I was referring to the effect that remittances uh, can have or lowering the cost of remittances. Uh, the, the challenge is more about young people who end up in factories like that and who are not sufficiently educated. And there are, uh, there's a range of interesting examples working with government workers in, in Southeast Asia that actually target their adult education programs specifically at the workplace. And that is very, a very innovative approach that deserves much more attention. Henrietta, do you want perhaps to pick up on these issues of child labour um, as, as an alternative to education or an incentive on child labour? Yes, yeah, so um, we were on a, a um, discussion earlier today about what happens in an economic downturn. And often what happens in an economic downturn is that the boys in the family are asked to go out and make a living and they feel that very strongly. They feel that they're not learning anything of value in school and so they leave school. For the girls, it's often that they are a burden at home and therefore it's time for early marriage. And that makes it very, very difficult for young people to stay in school. There's another period that, that helps um, keep children out of school, which we saw in Cox's Bazaar, which is that when a girl reaches puberty, and if you are in um, certain societies, the customs are that the girls will stay home and they will not go to school. And then that cuts off their ability to stay in school. So there are lots of reasons why um, girls often stay out of school. And 
the best is if you can convince the parents and the young people themselves that there's a future if they stay in school, that there's something good that they're going to learn, which is one reason why Generation Unlimited has been stood up, so that we can make this case that there's actually a contribution that they can have a living if they stay in school and that they will learn something. And then if I could just mention peace. Okay, well, go, go we ahead. If no one, to, uh, yes, no one catches does, we'll come back in a second. We can definitely pick it up doing the drink. I actually wanted to come back to Annette briefly, particularly also what we heard from the, the three countries, some of the challenges of our financing or making progress in development agencies, given your broad portfolio on the on human development as, as the bank, where you, you know, where you think is the international community making some progress on this? Well, I think, um, I mean, the reason we launched the Human Capital Project is because it's absolutely critical for all countries to invest in their kids. You know, I talked about the demographic challenge. There are two million kids a month entering the labour market, young people entering the labour market in the world. About, about a million of them in Africa and the other million mostly in India. And so there's actually a huge global challenge to make sure that those kids are educated and skilled for the future of, of, of work. Now, just tying back to these questions, education, the question about poor families keeping their kids in school, education happens as a partnership between families and, and educators. And it's, it's not just the supply of education that makes the difference. You need the demand side and the supply side. See, I had to say that because I'm from the World Bank. But it's, uh, it's absolutely critical that we support households to keep their kids in school. And that's one of the most important interventions that we've learned about. The evidence is very clear that actually if, if, if we can uh, actually incentivize households to keep their kids in school, those kids will, will not only be better educated, their kids will in turn be healthier and better educated. So it's a real virtuous circle. Now, just to come back to the governance, you know, uh, we know that all kids learn when they're in a safe and inclusive learning environment. And those two words really mean a lot depending on the context because a lot of schools in the world are not safe and inclusive for all kids. Um, and the schools themselves need to be accountable and transparent in some way. We need systems where teachers are encouraged and motivated to teach. You know, it's not enough even to get the teachers to show up, but to get them to actually teach and, and to see that the, the fruits of their work results in kids' learning. Um, and, we, we, and the third thing we know about the governance is that, that schools are rooted in communities. There needs to be a linkage between schools and, and the families, which I, I started with. So I actually think that the, the question about governance, is it actually pertains to all school systems, uh, because that's how kids learn. Thank you. Um, David, if you don't mind, I would like to leave the very last word to Helen, and we can pick up some other questions during the drink. Um, as you leave this room, um, um, leave us with some wisdom to, to work on, given how, you know, how big the challenge is, but also how extraordinary the potential of the opportunities are around getting well, this right. I was, I was just checking a reference here because uh, Henrietta and UNICEF are very prominent in a, a new global partnership to end violence in education, and it's showcasing events around this uh, week as well. So I think that's uh, at, really at to be applauded. Right. Uh, probably right <laughs> at this time, which is why you're straddling events. But 
I, I think I, I wanted to make two points, and it was picking up from what Cora said in the front row. You know, education is for life, right? It's for being a social being. It's being in a community. It's being in, able to interact with others. So often when you talk about education, people are focused on the economy and the skills. But we need people who can interact, can contribute to society. So I think peace education absolutely has a, has, a, has a place in this, where it fits, whether it's in civics, whether it's whatever. But I, I do worry that there's so much focus on the economic side of education that we don't educate for life and for being uh, social, social beings. My other point was going to be that, you know, the incentive for your children to be in school is that the family can actually survive without their labour. And that means either people have uh, a living wage or they have social protection. I have in my mind a visit I made to the west of Afghanistan in March, visiting the poorest of the poor families. I think of one family, mum and seven children. Mum has never been to school. She's married at, at, at 14 or 13, I think. Uh, oldest child, 14. She's 27, 28. She's illiterate. All the seven children are illiterate. You ask what their day is like. She says, I get up at six in the morning, I make them all a cup of tea because there's no money for food. And then everyone goes out to their tasks. The little ones are picking up the plastic and cans. Some are wiping the windscreens of the cars. Everybody's bringing some tiny little pittance in. So what would encourage that family to put their children to school? Mum's got to have a living. Dad is nowhere to be seen, and what I found in the west of Afghanistan is, A, many dads are dead, or B, they're away fighting, or C, uh, there's quite a, a problem now uh, with addiction because the men have kind of opted out. And when you say, what, what's wrong with these men that so many have this issue, they say they can't cope, they've opted out. So I look at a family like that, and I think the only thing that will get those children into school is mum's got to have a living. <laughs> And uh, there were two families I've visited in their homes like this where uh, the purpose around the visit was to understand more about why it had been a distinct prospect that the 12 and 13-year-old girls would be sold into marriage as second wives. And because they were an economic asset to these incredibly poor and illiterate families. So if we've got to change that, we've got to change the, the economics for the family and that'll be a, a living wage and or social protection. Thank you, um, and thank you to all the speakers for this uh, engaging discussion. Clearly, the you know the, the topic is big, and the challenges are many. I leave with two thoughts. Mm -hmm. Clearly, we have a challenge. There is a lot to do, and the gap is wide, and it's particularly wide when it comes to some of the most vulnerable uh, migrants and refugees. Um, financing being one, I picked up from the example in Ecuador of how much there is to do, and how much the private sectors and others still need to step up to fill that gap. On the other hand, these examples that we just heard from Helen and this, this concept, this idea that education is for life and migration is the story of humanity, it's just a reminder that this is all goes back to good development practice, right? It's, this is about you know, making sure that there are, you know, op you know, there, there's, there are opportunities so that you know, parents can work and that children can be protected and, 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 earn and, sort of, and learn um, basic skills and social skills for a living. And so in a way, it's making sure that we, as, as the whole community that is worked towards uh, supporting education systems, recognize that perhaps we had a bit of a blind spot over the years about the fact that people move. And it's something that we're simply not taken care of and not considered in what is fundamentally 
good, um, good development practice. So there is nothing impossible or nothing that makes the challenge too difficult by making sure that we, you know, that we specifically work for um, uh, refugees and other migrants when providing and thinking about delivering education for all. And with that in mind, I invite you all for a drink. And my apologies, um, it wasn't as a and, and a big sorry, a big thank you to our partners UNESCO and UNICEF and the Swiss government, and of course to my colleague Amy who made all of this possible. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.